Welcome to Grace Abounds. I'm Pastor Jen Shaw, and in this podcast, I'm sharing my Sunday sermons from St. John's Lutheran Church, Palm Desert, California. I'm so grateful that you've joined us, and I trust that these words build you up in faith, hope, and love. Several years ago, while I was attending Ascension Lutheran Church in Thousand Oaks, I helped to lead an adult ed class on The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. I've shared how important this book has been in my faith journey. And part of that significance is how convicted I am by Willard's insistence that Jesus wasn't kidding around when he told us and showed us how to live our lives every day in relationship with God and each other. Willard writes, plainly, in the eyes of Jesus, there is no good reason for not doing what he said to do, for he only tells us to do what is best. In one situation, he asks his students, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Just try picture yourself standing before him and explaining why you did not do what he said was best. Now, it may be that there are cases in which this is appropriate, and certainly we can count on his understanding. But it will not do as a general posture in a life of confidence in him. After I read Willard's book, I shared with Pastor Tim, my pastor at Ascension, that it was disheartening, and freeing to realize that no matter how hard I tried to be good, and trust me, I try to be good, I am a sinner, saved by grace, just like everybody else. I said to Pastor Tim, I guess I just felt, I guess I just felt, and he finished my sentence, like God didn't have to work as hard with you, Jesus offers a parable for those who think God doesn't have to work as hard with them in our gospel reading for today. This is the third of three parables that Jesus offers in the gospel of Luke about prayer. Luke notes that Jesus tells the first two parables, the friend at midnight and the persistent widow, which Pastor Jim preached on last week, so that we will pray always and not lose heart, so that we will keep coming to God and keep coming to God and keep coming to God no matter what, so that we will consistently make time every day to open our hearts and lives and minds to the Lord, to speak with and listen to God. As Luke recounts, Jesus himself prayed all the time. Jesus is praying at his baptism. When God the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and the voice of God the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Revealing the relationship of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are a divine community of eternal love. 
Jesus prays before he selects the 12 apostles. He prays on the mountaintop before his transfiguration. He prays with his disciples during the Last Supper. He prays while he is dying on the cross. He prays with his disciples after his resurrection. Jesus prayed consistently throughout his life and ministry. Prayer is being in relationship with God. We spend time with the people we love, being there for each other, sharing who we are, supporting one another, loving one another. And so it is with God. Prayer is being there for the God who is always there for us. Being aware of God's good and gracious presence as we go about our daily lives. Sharing who we are with the God who made us and knows us and loves us completely. How we pray reflects our relationship with God and each other. As Jesus illustrates in his third parable about prayer in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus begins this parable by stating, two men went up to the temple to pray. In that time and place, the Jewish people considered the temple to be the dwelling place of God on earth, sacred, holy space. They knew that God is present everywhere, but God's presence was experienced most clearly in the temple. It was the center of Jewish life and faith where people went to pray, to worship God, to read and discuss and study the scriptures together. Our psalm for today, Psalm 84, is one of many psalms that the people would sing together as they processed up to the temple to worship God. It expresses the joy of being in the presence of the Lord together. The joy of praising God, our creator, redeemer, sustainer in sacred space, in a sanctuary. The joy of knowing our strength is in the Lord. And so we can travel through the valley of weeping. The Hebrew word baka means weeping and make it a place of springs. We can persist as the widow in the parable did through the most difficult circumstances in life. We can move through the pain in this broken world because God is with us always. The temple was to be a place of prayer for all people. And corporate prayers were offered daily at the temple at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And the temple was open so that people could come throughout the day and offer their personal prayers as the two men in the parable do. One of the most moving experiences I had when I visited the Holy Land was visiting the Western Wall on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The last standing wall not of the temple itself, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, but of the retaining wall that surrounded the temple. 
And seeing, for those of you who've been there, you know, seeing all those pieces of paper, those little notes that were placed all along the wall in all the cracks and crevices with the written prayers of the people who had been there, offered to God in this beautiful and tragic and sacred space. Jesus notes that the two men who go to the temple to pray in this parable are a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, we may have been conditioned, at least I know I was, to see in this scenario the Pharisee as the bad guy and the tax collector, if not the good guy, at least the one that we should sympathize with. But this would have been the exact opposite for Jesus' first listeners. So let me reframe it for us. Two men go to church to pray. One of them is a local doctor who donates his time to a children's clinic. The other is an Enron executive whose financial mispractice caused widespread economic ruin. It might change it a little bit for us. In the eyes of their contemporaries, the tax collector was the bad guy. He was unrighteous. He was not right with God and others. Tax collectors in that time and place collected taxes among the Jewish people for the Roman Empire, the foreign oppressors of the Jewish people. And so tax collectors were generally despised as traitors. They were also notorious for taking more in taxes than Rome required and keeping the extra for themselves. And so they were generally despised as extortionists. Jewish rabbis held at the time, the tax collectors were essentially robbers and that they and their families should be barred from holding public office or testifying in Jewish court or even participating in worship at the temple. Note that the tax collector stands far off and keeps his eyes on the ground. In the eyes of their contemporaries, the Pharisee would have been the good guy. He was righteous. He was right in his relationship with God and others. The Pharisees were a group of Jewish people who took the scripture seriously and tried to keep all the commandments of God in their daily lives and believed that others should do the same. The word Pharisee is a transliteration from the Hebrew for one who is separate, set apart. The Pharisees attempted to set themselves apart in their goodness, their righteousness, their faithfulness to God. And this Pharisee in particular is setting himself apart by going above and beyond what the law required. Scripture only called for fasting a few days a year during major festivals, this Pharisee fasts twice a week. Scripture only called for giving 10% of certain sources of income like food and crops, but this Pharisee tithes on all of his income. This Pharisee, note, stands by himself and keeps his eyes on everybody else. But note that when Jesus speaks of these two men, 
at the close of the parable. He doesn't contradict what they say about themselves. We have no reason to believe that the Pharisee didn't actually do all of the good things that he tells God and everybody else about in his prayer. We have no reason to believe that the tax collector didn't do all the bad things that drove him to beg for mercy in his prayer. The point of this parable is not to moralistically compare the righteousness of these two men. The point of this parable is where they believe, where we believe, our righteousness comes from. The Pharisee goes to the temple and offers that prayer filled with self-righteousness. And so there's no room in his heart for the righteousness of God. He doesn't ask for mercy because he doesn't think he needs it. He doesn't call himself a sinner because he doesn't think he is one. God doesn't have to work as hard with him as with that tax collector. And so he does what Moses warns against in our reading from Deuteronomy 8. He somehow thinks that he has achieved all of this all on his own. He somehow forgets that that from which he tithes, that from which he fasts, is all a gift from God. He exalts himself. Note that in his prayer, he says, I, four times in two sentences. The Pharisee trusted in himself to make himself righteous. The tax collector, who knows he is not righteous, has room in his heart for the righteousness of God. He asks for mercy because he knows he needs it. He calls himself a sinner because he knows he is one. He humbles himself. He trusts in God to make him righteous, as God does in Christ Jesus our Lord, who suffered and died on the cross and rose again to life on the third day, taking our sin as his own and forgiving us taking our death as his own and giving and freeing us from it forever, bringing us with him into life eternal and abundant. And one day, Christ will come again and make all things new. Christ has saved us, justified us, made us right with God, made us righteous. We are saved by grace through faith in not works. Life now and forever is a gift. We don't have to make ourselves righteous before God. And we can't, even if we tried, but we don't have to. Salvation is not what we do. Salvation is what God in Christ has done for us. We don't earn God's grace because we already have God's grace. We are not good in order to be saved. We are good because we are saved. 
We love as God first loved us. We share the mercy we have received. Accepting that we need God's mercy, accepting that we have God's mercy, changes lives. It changed and is changing mine. It changed the life of Martin Luther. And we'll hear more about that next week on Reformation Sunday. Martin Luther, who wrote, wrote, If you are a preacher of grace, then preach a true, not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly. But believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. God's mercy also changed the life of the Apostle Paul, who was so transformed by the forgiveness, grace, love of Jesus Christ that he dedicated his life, he gave his life, proclaiming the good news of life in Christ. And so he wrote to his friend Timothy, as we heard in our reading from 2 Timothy, when he knew that the time for his departure from this earth was near, these words. And I might get a little choked up because these were the words that we had on the prayer card at my dad's funeral service who was a man of faith. Here's what Paul writes. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. We have come together today in this sacred space, this church, this sanctuary to worship and pray. May our prayers be filled with humility and gratitude. May we realize that we are sinners saved by grace just like everybody else. May we trust in Christ to make us righteous and do what he tells us to do. Amen. Thanks for listening. Each week's episode is edited by Nick Cox. Music performed by our St. John's Worship Band. Sermons by me, Pastor Jen Shaw. Make sure to subscribe to hear each week's message. If you'd like to know more about St. John's mission to know Christ and make Christ known, to share the life-giving word and do the life-giving work of Jesus, visit our website, stjohnslutheran.church. May God bless you on this day and in all the days ahead.